Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. I'm your host, Jeremy Walker, and it's my privilege to walk with you through sermons that have been preached by the eminent Victorian pastor, preacher, and evangelist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Each week, we choose a representative sermon from the weekly readings so that we can learn something as Christians, as preachers, uh, not just from a historical interest, as it were, but by looking at a man who was gifted by the Holy Spirit to preach the glories of Jesus Christ as Saviour. This week, we're in sermons 1130 to 1136, and you can usually follow some uh, w- daily uh, snippets on X at Reading Spurgeon. And then each week, this featured sermon where we do a deeper dive. And this week, 1,131. And mediagratii.org slash podcasts will give you an opportunity to follow along with that weekly reading. Now, 1873 is the year, but this sermon doesn't have a particular date. What it has is a very brief phrase as its subject. From Isaiah 62 and verse 10, gather out the stones. It was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, and its title is Clearing the Road to Heaven. And this is how it begins. Gather out the stones, that is to say, out of the king's highway. Clear the road. Make room for coming sinners. Take away all stumbling blocks. Make the gospel plain and simple and come to the help of those who find hindrances and impediments in their progress to the Saviour. So Spurgeon's stated aim is right there in the first sentence of this sermon as it was printed. In this, he's showing himself skilled in something that, as far as I can tell, we are today not particularly good at, even in uh, robustly, reformed and evangelical churches, I think this may be something that we could well cultivate. In fact, a a friend of mine asked recently something like this, where are the pleaders with sinners in our day? Now, I think there are some, but I don't think they all, certainly by any stretch, have the the, the clarity and the intensity and the, the kindness and the ingenuity of Spurgeon in a sermon like this. If you read in Acts chapter 17 of how Paul came to Thessalonica, there's a series of fascinating verbs that he uses. He reasoned, he explained, he demonstrated, he preached or proclaimed, and as a consequence, some were persuaded. Now, those aren't the only verbs that have to do with making known Jesus Christ in the scriptures, in the the, the apostolic ministry, but it's a, a good representative sample. How often do we do those things in our ministry? Spurgeon does them well in this sermon. He tells us that when poor souls are coming to Jesus, they are generally themselves their own worst enemies. They have a singular ingenuity, a distinctive inventiveness in finding out reasons why they should not be saved. A strange infatuation seems to possess them so that they ransack heaven and earth and hell to find discouragements. They become inventive of difficulties where difficulties are not, 
and often and often the pastor, whose business it is to look after the little ones, finds himself, notwithstanding his former experience with persons of like character, utterly bewildered. He is often put to a non-plus with the strange and novel difficulties which awakened sinners will imagine and the reasons which they invent why they should not believe in Jesus Christ. One would hardly think that the human mind could twist itself into such knots. So many sinners, so many new arguments, for each one has a logic of his own by which he labours to prove the impossibility of his own salvation. Now because of the nature of Spurgeon's ministry, he may have come across an unusual number of such cases, but I think most ministers would say that they too have had to deal with these singular ingenuities, men and women who seem to find out reasons to discourage themselves and to explain why they cannot or should not um, or are not able to come to Jesus Christ. Now, alongside those discouragements that arise from fear and weakness, seeking sinners are generally prey to severe assaults of the great enemy of souls. When Satan sees a soul coming to Christ, says our preacher, he hastens to aggravate that sinner's doubts and fears and raise a double tempest in his spirit. So what Spurgeon wants to do, and, and this is where he's pitting his holy ingenuity against this doubting and fearing ingenuity is to work through some of these stones in the road that he wants to clear the way between this sinner who's so distressed and troubled and coming to Jesus Christ in order to find peace and that's where that uh, language of the apostle or concerning the apostle in Acts 17 is so helpful because there's going to be reasoning and explaining and demonstrating and persuading as well as proclaiming. And Spurgeon is going to bend now his mind and, and there's the beautiful blend of both the, the pastor and the evangelist, the man with insight as a physician of souls and the man who wants to bring others to Jesus Christ so that the whole of his humanity with all his giftedness is poured into this particular channel. So then he's going to begin by lifting some of the stones out of the road. So he's going to hit these, these reasons that sinners may give as to why they cannot come to Jesus Christ. First of all, he talks about an old and common difficulty, the doctrine of election. Perhaps I am not one of God's chosen. And he says, you know, free agency and predestination, yep, there are difficulties in, in understanding how those things hold together. But here is the way John Bunyan met the difficulty in his Grace Abounding, which book I earnestly recommend to every tempted soul. Now, that's quite interesting because there are other places where he says that uh, we need to be careful with that book because it can't be used as a model for conversion. Some might read it and then say, I need to go through the depths which Bunyan passed through in order to know that God is at work in me. But here he says, it's a book that a tempted soul should read. So interesting that he uh, almost uh, turns that about and says, well, maybe he's saying it in some cases, yes. But here he says, every tempted soul. So there are some things where he thinks there's a lot of use in that book, even though there may be some people to whom he wouldn't recommend it. 
Anyway, in that autobiography, which Bunyan entitles Grace Abounding, he says that he was perplexed for many days together over the doctrine, till at last this thought came into his mind. Search in the book of God, and see whether ever there was a sinner that trusted in Jesus who was confounded. So the good man set to work and read the book through from the first of Genesis to the last of Revelation, but he could not find an instance of a sinner that ever did come to Christ that was rejected because he was not elect. And the snare was broken, and he said, I will even go, he will not reject me. There is a practical, common sense way out of the difficulty. I know not any better way of practically treating the manner than of saying, I will go to Jesus because he bids me, and because he has said, him that comes to me I will by no means cast out. If I go to him and he casts me out, then he has broken his promise, but that he never can do. So now I venture to rest upon his blood and leave my soul's salvation in his hands. In other matters you act so. When you are ill, you do not know whether you are ordained to get well, but you send for the doctor. You cannot tell whether you are predestinated to be rich, but you endeavor to make money. You do not know whether you will live through the day, but you work to provide yourself with bread. Thus common sense cuts the knot which mere theory can never untie. Leave you the subtleties of argument alone and act as sensible men. Go to Jesus and try whether he will reject you, and you will be saved. Another common difficulty is a deep sense of sin. But do you think Christ died on the cross for nothing? asks Spurgeon. There must have been some great reason for his being put to such a cruel and shameful death. That reason was great sin. If there had not been great sin, there would not have been need of a great Saviour. Know assuredly that the Saviour is greater than your sin, and his merit is greater than your guilt. If all the sins that men have done in will, in word, in thought, in deed, since worlds were made or time begun were laid on one poor sinner's head, the stream of Jesus' precious blood applied removes the dreadful load. So if the blackest sinner outside the gates of hell would believe in Jesus, in that moment all his sins would cease to be. For there is, and there must be, an infinite efficacy in the blood of such an one as Jesus Christ, who counted it not robbery to be equal with God. Does the Son of God smart beneath the lash of justice? Then, beloved, that substitutionary suffering must have a merit in it which is not in your power or mine to measure. Does sin trouble you? Then remember that it is written, All manner of sin and of blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Remember this again, The blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. And hear yet again this word, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Do you know, I feel right happy to have to talk to you about this and yet I feel a dart going through me, lest I should not speak of it as I ought to do. For, oh, I would that poor troubled sinners would see that sin need not deter them from coming to a reconciled God. For the blood of Jesus Christ has already removed from before the throne of justice all the transgressions of all those who come and rest in Jesus. If you believe in the Saviour sent of God, your sin is already gone, and you are accepted in the Beloved." So you see what he's doing now. Here's the stone in the way, and here's me clearing it out by whatever means I legitimately can. Another stone in the road 
is that the day of grace has passed. Your, your chance for salvation is gone. Now, I do not quite know where that notion of a day of grace came from. I'm not quite sure about the truth of that doctrine, and if it means that any man who repents and believes will find it too late in this life, I deny it altogether. But without controversy, I will tell you one thing for certain. There never was a sinner that believed in Jesus who believed in him too late for salvation. There never was a man in this world who cried to God for mercy through the blood of Jesus and who had for his answer, Your day of grace is past. No, the Lord's grace can come to a man at any time and at any hour. It is never too late to believe in Jesus. Dear heart, it is not too late for you. Do not believe the suggestion of Satan, but come and welcome. Mercy's gate is not shut. Then again, some have a, a tendency when they're wrestling with this question to blasphemous thoughts. They, they bubble up in the soul when you're seeking to deal with these matters. I should never have believed it, says Spurgeon, if I had not experienced it. What intolerably wicked, atheistic and profane thoughts will come into the minds of pure-minded people against their will and without their consent to their utter horror and dismay. He tells us that a little sinner can, as it were, only give to Christ little glory by trusting him, but if these things are coming upon you and you feel yourself the greatest of sinners, then give Jesus the great glory of believing that his precious blood can cleanse you, that he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. So don't let these fearful things drive you from Christ, but draw you to him, says Spurgeon. Then, for some, the problem is the absence of anything like a horrible thought or a terror or an alarm. Uh, it's strange, isn't it, how you, you can swing from one extreme to the other. They're, they're, they're troubled. He says, I know some who've believed in Jesus Christ just as soon as Christ has been preached to them and have found joy with little difficulty and then conclude they can't have been really converted because they didn't suffer those terrors and distresses which others have experienced. So perhaps these are the people who, who have picked up grace abounding to the chief of sinners and said, well, I haven't been through Bunyan's experience. Have I obtained Bunyan's blessing? To which Spurgeon answers, repentance of sin is necessary, but to doubt the mercy of God and to run into despair are not necessary, but are even injurious and sinful. If you do not happen to be hunted about by the hellhounds of remorse and despondency, you quite as much need the good shepherd and are quite as welcome to come to him. There is no need to go round by hell's gate to get to heaven. Trust in Jesus just as you are, and you are saved. Then there are some who think they, they lack sensibility or sensitivity with regard to their sins. He says, a man is saved by having his heart broken and being led to cast himself upon Jesus. And if you have not yet received this part of salvation, your business is to come to Jesus for it, not to stay away until you get it by yourself and then come to Christ with your feelings as a recommendation. The problem, he says, is that sometimes people say, I need to stir this up then within myself in order to come to Jesus Christ. But a broken heart is a gift of God's grace. It's not the ground or reason why Jesus should save you. It's a, it's a part of that salvation that you need. So it's the greatest mistake for us to imagine that we are to make ourselves feel something and then Christ will save us. Feelings of contrition are as much his work as is the atonement for the remission of sin. Christ is Alpha 
as well as Omega in salvation. You must begin with Him and go on with Him and end with Him, if end there ever can be. Now I hear another say, Ah, but my stone in the road is that I cannot believe. I haven't got the faith that I need. But if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, God will recognize that faith and make it grow, and that faith will save you. It's not quantity but quality that the Lord looks at. It's the object of faith we should look to, and if we did, our faith would grow. You may look at faith till you think you have none, but on the other hand, you may look at Christ till you feel you cannot help believing in him. So what reason on earth can there be why you should not believe God to be speaking the truth and believe what Jesus Christ says? Awakened, quickened sinner, at the same moment that God gave you spiritual life to feel that you were a sinner, he gave you the principle in which dwells power to believe in Jesus Christ, the sinner's saviour. And we charge you to exercise that power and to cast yourself once for all upon the finished sacrifice of Christ the Lord. Again, some people say, but I don't think I can be saved because I'm not like so-and-so. Who is this so-and-so? asks Spurgeon. Well, my dear grandmother who died so triumphantly. And you're a babe in Christ and you expect to be like your grandmother? The Lord isn't looking for fruit on you in order to recommend you to his mercy. He's not comparing you either with some other believer and you ought not to be looking for such things. Your fruit must grow on another tree, on that tree whereon the Saviour died, for from him your fruit is found. Now you're ten times worse than you think you are, says Spurgeon. Yes, a thousand times worse. You're so bad that you are good for nothing. You are neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. But it is good for nothing people that Jesus Christ came to save. Not the worthy and the excellent and the valuable, but those that are humble in their own eyes, those who think themselves nothing and feel they never can be anything unless a miracle be wrought for them. The worse you feel yourself to be, the more you need God's mercy and the more likely you are to get it. Come and lay hold on eternal life by a simple faith in Jesus Christ. And then just one more, says Spurgeon, uh, conscious that there may be uh, plenty more that he could address, is the person who says, I never have any joy and peace, and I see the happiness and gladness of those who are saved. Oh, believe in Jesus, says Spurgeon, just trust him. This is the grace which enters in by the door and participates in the blessings of mercy. Trust in him wholly, solely, entirely, and in him alone. And being justified by faith, you shall have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord grant it, and he shall have the praise. Now, this is a wonderful example for preachers. And I hope that if someone's listening to this who's been struggling with one or more of these challenges and difficulties, it may be a help to you also. But Spurgeon's peeling back the layers of the troubled soul. He's thinking both pastorally and evangelistically about the, the way that either out of the, the troubled heart or from the assaults of the evil one, these obstacles get put in the way of a sinner coming to Jesus Christ. Here is this reasoning and explaining and demonstrating and proclaiming and, and persuading that is the mark of uh, preaching in the apostolic mode. 
Now, he tells us at the end of this first point that one of our friends at the prayer meeting prayed that I might give God's people this morning a thick slice, just as he gave his hungry children. Now, that was a very quaint and suggestive prayer, and I sometimes try to act up to it. But tonight, he says, I've been trying to cut a thin slice because I have sometimes heard of schools where the slice was too thick for the children's mouth. And therefore, I've tried to cut mine thin so that if there's a babe here, he might be able to feed on it. I would even crumb down the subject and mix it with the milk of the word. That's why he's quoting over and over again from the Bible, so that it might suit those who cannot feed upon strong meat as yet. My anxious prayer is that the Holy Spirit may help the weaklings to feed thereon and be glad. So you've got this uh, human desire and and proper responsibility. Spurgeon saying, I'm going to break this down uh, as much as I can so that there's no no reason, humanly speaking, why someone shouldn't be able to profit from this. But I'm also so conscious that without the blessing of God, I can do nothing. And so my anxious prayer is that God would make this food to feed those who are weak. Now, We've, we've talked, I think, primarily about reasoning, explaining, demonstrating, persuading, but there's also that proclaiming, and that's what Spurgeon does in his second point, and it's much briefer than the first. Because having removed the stones, he wants to point us to him who is the way, the truth, and the life, who has already cleared the stumbling blocks out of the road. So here he turns from the uh, exposing and removing of these doubts and fears to a a direct pointing toward the Lord Christ. Traveller to heaven, pilgrim of the night, cast your eye upon the captain of our salvation, even Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, and see how he has cast up the highway in the desert and prepared a path through the wilderness. Looking unto him, the crooked will grow straight and the rough places plain, and you shall see the salvation of God. So look at him now, as he was on earth, the Son of Man. In order that men should be saved, it was needful, necessary, that God himself should take into union with his Godhead the nature of the poor, feeble creature called man. Sinner, in order that you might be saved, God must needs dwell here in human flesh. Hear that direct address? Sinner, I'm talking to you. I'm speaking to you. God has been here. He has been here. He has been here. The fact is as certain as it is strange. He slept on a woman's breast at Bethlehem. He was swaddled as other babes have been. God has been with us. As man, he worked in a carpenter's shop. He has been here. He ate and drank among men and slept and suffered as men do. He has been here. God has become man to save sinners. Is anything impossible after that? Then it was needful that Jesus Christ should abide here for a while, should stay and should work miracles of love. And that's what he has done. It was needful before you could be saved that in the person of man, that son of God who came and who worked these mighty miracles to demonstrate his willingness and ability to save, that this same Christ should die. Oh, I can conceive of him living on earth, but who shall conceive of him dying? God was in Christ as he died upon the accursed tree. Thus on the tree, says Spurgeon, he died, 
And in that death, he took the punishment due on account of the sin of all who shall believe on him. He suffered in their stead an equivalent for all that they would have had to suffer had they been cast into the pit of hell. This being done, salvation is not only possible, but it is achieved. Believe in it, sinner. What stone remains now that Jesus has died? God has made atonement. The eternal God himself has put away human sin. Why do you doubt? Come, I say, hasten to the cross. Gaze upon this wondrous spectacle of divine love, and as you gaze you shall live, for there is life in a look at Jesus, life for everyone who rests in him. He's just piling up now the positive reasons. He said, don't be distracted, don't be discouraged, don't be put off by the things that have bubbled out of you, but fix your eyes upon what Christ has done in coming as a man, in working his works of love, in dying in the place of sinners. Yes, he died for human guilt, but he rose again. He lives for the justification of his people. Why does he live? It's because no human guilt remains to keep him as a hostage in the grave. All the guilt which he took upon himself he has put away. He's buried it. It's gone. It went from us when he died. It has gone from him now that he has risen. The risen Lord has finished transgression, made an end of sin, and brought in everlasting righteousness. Again, hear this insistence upon the scriptures themselves, this weaving together of shorter, typically, and and occasionally slightly longer phrases or sentences from the revelation of God. Why? Because God is speaking to all these matters. Who would not then believe in a risen Christ? If God has set my surety free, I am sure that I am clear. If Christ laid as a hostage for my sins in the cold prison of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, I bless him for it. But when I see him set free, I bless him yet more, for I know that my sins are gone. And having risen from the grave, now he mounts the skies. He ascends, he rises higher and higher. Now he sits at his father's right hand, for his life work is finished, and the king of glory has gone in. No more sacrifice is needed. No other will ever be offered. But while he sits there, mark what he does. Look at what's going on. Christ, the ascended Lord, intercedes. He pleads. He pleads. And for whom does he plead? For sinners bought with blood. He pleads for all that come to God by him, for you, if now you trust him. Thou blackest sinner out of hell, he pleads for thee, if thou dost trust him. Utterly lost, ruined and condemned, dissolute, debauched, you may have been, yea, all but damned. But if you will trust him, there is infinite mercy in his heart, and in his plea there is infinite power. Now, Spurgeon has been, if you like, on the negative side, exposing and removing those stones in the road. Then on the positive side, he's made clear that Christ himself has made this highway to heaven, is himself the the clear path to salvation. And he's been doing it. He's been reasoning and explaining and demonstrating and persuading and proclaiming in, in outstanding ways. But now, if you're a preacher, listen to him. Oh, that I knew how to preach the gospel. Now, brother, if you're a minister of this good news and you've read this sermon or listened to this poor presentation of it 
and you've thought, wow, this is a man who knows how to dig. This is a man who knows how to probe. This is a man who knows how to point. This is a man who, who brings all the wisdom of pastoral experience and all the urgency of the evangelist's zeal and directs it all toward the great end of granting uh, that under God a, a sinner may see Christ for salvation. And how does he conclude? Oh, that I knew how to preach the gospel. I wonder if this under God is part of the reason for his blessing, that this is a man who, who feels that his most insightful and eloquent labors are without merit in themselves, and he's casting himself upon the Lord. Oh, for a great trumpet to blow such a blast that every ear should hear it. Oh, will you reject Christ? I pray you may not. Here's the beseeching man. This is not just a, a study in the realities of, of a soul coming to Christ. This is a preacher pleading with sinners for their salvation. At your peril, you will not come to Christ. If I were called at this moment from this pulpit to the bar of God, I could dare to say that I have tried to tell you all the comforting truths about my master that I know. If I could weep you to the Saviour, I would do it. If my arms about your necks would bring you to his feet, I would be glad, my brothers, to try the infectionate embrace. But what more can mortal do? Do you reject my master or will you receive him? I would do as the Roman ambassadors did to the eastern king when they made a ring in the sand and said, pass that ring and you proclaim war or you make peace. You must stand and decide within that circle. I draw such a circle around you tonight and say, do not stir from that pew till Christ or sin, heaven or hell, faith or unbelief is chosen by you. And may the Holy Spirit help you to such a gracious decision that you may say, I will believe. Lord, help my unbelief. I cast myself now, whether I am saved or lost, upon the finished work of the risen Lord. The Lord grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Once more I say that the purpose of this podcast is, is not just to be impressed by Spurgeon, not just to... Uh, marvel at uh, some of uh, what history tells us God was pleased to do by him, but for ourselves to learn what it means to preach Christ and what it means to know the Christ whom the gospel man preaches. So the Lord help us first to come to Christ, that the stones may be cleared away, and that those of us who are meant to proclaim the way of the Lord that we might learn to remove such obstacles from the highway. And with that heartfelt compassion, that earnest zeal, that whole-souled concern for the glory of God in the salvation of sinners and for the blessing of sinners in salvation to the glory of God, that we might be able to do that in a way that sees something of the same favour from heaven upon our endeavours. May God grant that it would be so. And I trust you'll join us then again next week for Sermon 1139, The Minister's Plea. The Minister's Plea. We'll be reading from 1137 to 1143. And until then, may God bless us indeed and grant that we may learn to clear the stones and may learn to come by a cleared way to Christ for his mercy. Thank you for listening and God bless you.